Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's Thursday, February 23rd, and welcome to another episode of The Ben Jarofsky Show. Today on the show, Ben is welcomed by In These Times writer, Miles Camp-Lassen. Miles returns. The Ben Jarofsky Show is brought to you in part by SEIU Healthcare Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, and so much more, including columns from your very own Ben Jarofsky. Hey, and speaking of Ben Jarofsky, head on over to ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky and find some more cool stuff from Ben, columns, bonus interviews, and so much more. That's ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. J-O-R-A, V is in victory, S-K-Y. Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Outside Chicago Thursday, and here's why. Because there's a world that exists outside of Chicago. That's why. I'm going to take a brief dive into it before I, I go right back to Chicago. But before I take that dive, let me start in Chicago. As I begin this uh, conversation with Miles Conflasa from In These Times, good friend of the show, distinguished leftist, Whitney Young grad, we'll cover all that. Diehard Bulls fans, we'll cover all that. Uh, I spent at least two hours, two hours, ladies and gentlemen. I have no life, okay? I admit it. Two hours talking Chicago politics on my cell phone with various to-be guests. Like, I, it's, it's not like I don't talk enough about Chicago politics as it is, but in preparation to booking guests, two hours. And let me tell you something. One was a Louis Gutierrez uh, who supports uh, Jesus Chewy Garcia. The other one was Mark Sims, who supports uh, Lori Life. But I can't remember at the moment who the third was. And they were all trashing the other candidates. Chicago is a weird place. Um, but outside of Chicago, the world goes on. And uh, I would really love to have a conversation about this race, but not going to really do it today, I think, because I think we're going to go back to Chicago. But in the state of Wisconsin, uh, they have a system for uh, selecting judges, a nonpartisan uh, system. So the first round, I think, was uh, Tuesday. And the winner of that first round, by a large margin, uh, was a liberal circuit court judge, not a lefty, a liberal. Uh, Janet uh, Protosiewicz. I'm sure I'm butchering her name. Uh, she's a liberal. Uh, and uh, the uh, her opponent in the runoff that will happen on April 4th, the same day we're having our runoff here in the city of Chicago. Yeah, there will be a runoff, folks. Is an arch conservative, uh, Daniel Kelly, uh, who's a little to the right of, I don't know, Attila the Hun. Uh, and um, so this is a, a, this is a showdown election. The winner will be the decisive vote in the Wisconsin uh, State Supreme Court. Uh, and they will be uh, that court will be ruling on so many significant issues that affect folks in the state of Wisconsin, but also will ultimately affect people throughout the country. Why do I say that? Good question. Uh, for instance, the abortion. 
the right of women to get abortion in the state of Wisconsin will definitely be before this ju- uh, this court. So if Kelly uh, loses, that's out the window. Uh, no abortion rights in the state of Wisconsin. It also gets into issues of gerrymandering. Uh, for the last 10 years or so, Republicans have commanded uh, control of the map-making process in the state of Wisconsin. They effectively have gerrymandered Democrats into a minority existence, even though it's a roughly 50-50 state. Um, uh, Miles and I have talked about this at times. Uh, Miles is a friend, as I recall, who's in a uh, state rep uh, in uh, in Wisconsin. And so that state rep, she knows what it's like to be in the major in the minority, uh, thanks to a gerrymandered uh, map. So this court could rule against excessive gerrymandering by the Republicans and maybe impact some congressional races as well, which impacts Congress. See, I think long range. And then, of course, uh, there's a cockamamie system. Uh, excuse me. Uh, the challenges uh, to democracy very strong in Wisconsin. Uh, the 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 base of voters in the state of Wisconsin who think that the election was stolen from Donald John Trump uh, by Joe Biden a ridiculous position to hold. There's absolutely no evidence of it. Uh, it's just something they made up and they believed. Uh, that's a strong group, a strong minority faction in the state. And uh, so uh, the whole issue of who the electors are. Uh, and how um, who gets to decide who the electors are will probably come before uh, the Supreme Court as well. So if it's a MAGA Supreme Court, likely uh, they'll um, vote the MAGA way. Uh, and that uh, would be if Daniel Kelly wins. Uh, and if Judge Janet, let's just call her Judge Janet wins, it'll be a, a Democratic Supreme Court. So a lot on, at stake in Wisconsin. Uh, so the world exists outside of chicago there is a world outside of chicago ladies and gentlemen and now having said all that i'll come back to chicago with miles conflason welcome back miles thank you very much good to be here and you're right that's going to be uh, one of the most probably monumental races uh, this election year is the what's shaping up in wisconsin and i think you know judging by tuesday's results and turnout democrats have a lot of reasons to be um, hopeful that they can uh, they can take that seat and reclaim a majority. So we'll we'll see what happens. But I have a feeling there's going to be a lot of money and attention and big profile name Democrats getting involved in that race over the next uh, few weeks. So we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. And I, it, ordinarily, there'd be a lot of interest uh, in that race by uh, Chicago activists. I think so many of the Chicago activists obviously uh, will be distracted if you will, by our own mayoral election and uh, aldermanic runoffs, which are on April uh, 4th. Uh, but ladies and gentlemen, Scott Walker and the Republicans snatched Wisconsin away. What was that, uh, Miles? 2010, 2011. Uh, they rewrote the laws regarding uh, union collective bargaining rights. Uh, they weakened the Democratic Party as a result of that. If you crush the unions, you weaken the Democrats. Something you should think about here in the city of Chicago, all you people who hate the Chicago Teachers Union. And uh, so as a result, Republicans have held that state uh, since Scott Walker. And I want to say 2016, the Democrats paid a price, right, Miles? That's when uh, Donald Trump eked out a win over Hillary Clinton in the state of Wisconsin. Uh, And I think a large degree because of um, weakening the unions uh, by Scott Walker. Uh, So, yeah, Wisconsin's a very important state. Uh, all right, let's move uh, to the city of Chicago. We have plenty of time to talk about Wisconsin. Uh, 
in uh, future shows. Miles, you said something to me yesterday pre-show, and uh, love to take the deep dive in this. Uh, the the election is this coming Tuesday, and uh, at the moment, the polls show Paul Vallis, uh, the MAGA man, uh, he used to run the Chicago Public Schools uh, for Mayor Daley, uh, in first place. Uh, and in all likelihood, he will emerge from Tuesday's voting to go to the runoff. Uh, so Chicago will have the possibility, the threat of a MAGA man running this city. And that's because the anti-MAGA vote uh, in the city of Chicago is divided among seven other candidates, uh, I would say. The, 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 the ninth candidate in the race, Willie Wilson, is also competing with the MAGA vote. Uh, and um, so pretty much every lefty I know, well, that's not true, every liberal I know, Every progressive I know, uh, as opposed to lefties, is doing a, ver a version, a variation of strategic voting, trying to figure out who they should vote for. Uh, so I, as though that person who would be the best candidate to defeat Paul Vallis, the person best suited to defeat Paul Vallis, the person with the best chance to defeat Paul Vallis. So they're not thinking so much of who they want to be the mayor, who's closest to them ideologically. Uh, they want to, they're thinking strategically. Suddenly they're David Axelrod and they're trying to figure out who is the best candidate, best on polls, which <laughs> are flawed to begin with, uh, and gut feelings and conversations with friends and like-minded people, et cetera, and so forth. Your thoughts, Miles, on voters becoming strategists and exercising their inner David Axelrods at moments like this. Go ahead. Well, it's understandable under a system where we have, you know, nine people running for mayor and it's pretty clear just based on the kind of demographic outlay of the field that, you know, certain candidates are going to benefit. Uh, last, if we look back, uh, last time around in 2019, you had Gary McCarthy running for mayor. You had, uh, of course, <clears throat> the Daily Brother, um, third Daily, Daily Three, if you want to call him, <laughs> um, Big Bill, and then uh, and uh, Joyce as well, along with Vallis. So there was a wide array of kind of candidates, both competing, you know, both white male candidates, but also ones that were appealing to this kind of law and order sensibility, um, you know. MAGA Republican style politics, if you will. I mean, I don't think all of them really framed their campaigns that way, but certainly McCarthy uh, was going after that. And so Vallis was able to take kind of a different tack that, of course, he didn't make the runoff. Um, this time around, it's a different uh, set of characters that are running for mayor. And it's no surprise that looking at the way that likely that will turn out, you know, you're going to have voters thinking about who's the best bet to take uh, down Paul Vallis in a runoff if it comes to that, um, because you don't, you know, a lot of people really don't want Paul Vallis to be the next mayor of Chicago. Anybody who doesn't want Chicago to go backwards, you know, to the times of Daly and, you know, the era of really um, uh, complete power concentration in the hands of uh, the corporate elite in the city, which is really what Paul Vallis's campaign represents. Um, they're thinking about how do we, you know, be best positioned in, in a runoff right now. 
I share a lot of the concerns that I think you probably have and a lot of people have with this focus. I mean, there was just this article in Chicago Magazine the other day saying why you should vote strategically in the election. And I, you know, flinch a little bit at that because I think politics are about, you know, uh, who can appeal the best to the voters. You know, that's what democracy is. That fundamentally, it's not about being a strategist or being a pundit. Uh, it's about making choices that you think uh, are going to best benefit the lives of yourself, your family, and your your community. And that should still be like the North Star of how people approach elections. Um, that said, because of our political system, we have with a you know runoff that goes to the top two, and we don't have reforms in place that other cities have, whether it's ranked choice voting like they have in New York City, as well as states like Maine and other and others, or even approval voting, which is kind of a different version of that that they used in St. Louis last year in the um, municipal elections there, um, which also allowed for some choice. You know, I think that the way that they had it set up, you would vote for as many candidates you approve of and the top two went into a runoff. And that did, you know, that resulted in the most progressive candidate um, winning out. So there's different ways to, you know, have these kind of democracy reforms in place. But in Chicago, we don't have that. You know, you get, you just vote for who you think is best. And basically that means for most progressive voters or voters on the, you know, somewhat left side of the ledger, vote for somebody that's going to take on Paul Vallis in April. And so it, and I think some of this is really related to the 2016 elections, you know, and the long hangover and real trauma that voters have had since Donald Trump became president. And partially it's because, you know, the pundits didn't predict that Trump was going to be uh, elected president. You know, all you heard in the lead up to 2016 was he has no chance. Look at all the polls, look at, you know, um, the behavior of the candidate Donald Trump, there's no way that he could possibly be um, be elected. And like you said, by a margin of like, you know, what was it like 50,000 votes, or maybe even less in Wisconsin, that was enough, basically, with the electoral math to tip over um, and, and get him into office. And so, you know, people, I think, voters and political junkies, or just people interested, took a lesson from that but the lesson wasn't oh don't believe the pundits it was let's become pundits ourselves yes. because maybe we can figure it out <laughs> yeah. you know and i think that that's been happening throughout you know and i think that had a lot to do with why bernie sanders honestly was so harshly attacked in the 2020 primary um even by <laughs> democrats because they were all thinking in 12 dimensional chess of who can be the most electable to defeat trump and they were, you know, you know, battered over the head with all these things about <laughs> electability issues. And so they convinced themselves out of voting for the person they might think would be the best because they wanted the person that could, you know, beat Trump or do, even though, you know, I think Bernie Sanders would have defeated Trump just the same way Joe Biden did. But not to rehash that, but I think it, it, it it's still part of that same process, right, that it has affected voters today where we're thinking Oh, you know, I, I can't tell you the amount of conversations I've had over the past few weeks with people that are kind of gaming out, you know, the very various like cost benefit analysis of different candidates and how that's going to play. And, you know, there's it makes sense to gauge the, the relative strength and weaknesses of certain candidates. But at some point, I think you have to be motivated by the candidates that really speak to you, you know, and the issues that you care about. And if anything is going to be, you know, a, a 
the the cause for you to change your vote. I think it should be what momentum, you know, which candidates are really showing that they can build coalitions and be able to, you know, rise up in the polls in the last days of the campaigns. I mean, I just based on how previous, you know, elections have gone, that is evidence, I think, that people that those are the type of candidates that can be strong um, heading into a runoff are the ones that are, you know, d doing building uh, their, and broadening their bases of support. Um, I don't think that's the only reason to vote for a candidate, but I do think that that's one thing that it makes sense to keep in mind um, when we talk about voting strategically. But there's no, you know, there, there's no guideline on it. Everybody has to make that choice um, for themselves. But as you've said time and time again, the lane that Paul Ballas has taken is going to lead to a runoff. And so it makes sense to think who is going to be draw the biggest contrasts with Paul Ballas and who's going to be able to really drive home a message that will speak to a majority of Chicagoans who don't want to see us move backwards, but um, want to want to see an actual forward looking vision for the city and reimagining kind of what politics can 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 look like in City Hall. Well, I. Uh... You brought up 2016, so I'm going to go there. And uh, to me, uh, there's a generational aspect to this. Uh, so I'm going to, but what I'm about to say, I apologize to all my uh, uh, fellow baby boomers. But you know how I feel about you boomers. Uh, you really are a pathetic generation. And not every baby boomer, I'm speaking in general terms. But I associate the concept of strategic voting with the 2016 uh, Democratic primary. Uh, and I associate it, further associate it with a, at least two dozen conversations I've had with baby boomers who would tell me <laughs> with such a, a sure authority, Miles, that there is no way a lefty like Bernie Sanders could ever beat Donald Trump or any Republican. And they would be telling me, Ben, you don't understand. They got pictures of Bernie and without a shirt on in the Soviet Union. <laughs> you know, many, if I had a nickel for every baby boomer who told me about those shirtless photos, Miles, I'd be a rich man. Okay. I could take you out for lunch. And uh, so it's a baby boomer thing. And people get older, Miles, they get more caught. It's going to happen to you, by the way. You get, you tend to get more cautious, more conservative, more fearful. You get afraid. You know what I'm saying? And so like baby boomers, that's that when it comes to voting, so many of them have that same impulse. I'm scared. <laughs> I'm scared. And your generation doesn't have it. I've never heard a millennial or a Z tell me, I'm going to vote strategic in this. Life. If you notice, everybody writing this stuff is a baby boomer. So it's old baby boomers who are so scared of their shadow, uh, you know, and you know what? I'm going to give you one more point and you can respond to both. I think there's a lot of baby boomers out there who don't want to vote for Paul Vallis, but if it's Brandon Johnson, they know they're going to be real. <laughs> they're going to be really drawn to that Paul Vallis. You know what I'm saying, Miles? It's sort of like, that cautiousness, that conservativeness will take over them. And they'll <laughs> his defund the police rhetoric is really frightening. And then they'll quietly vote for Paul Val. I know you baby boomers, been around you a long time. 
So those are my two theories about the generational aspect of strategic voting. Your thoughts, Miles? I can certainly see that dynamic taking place because the, the other element of this is right now we're basically in the primary. You know, Chicago elections, we don't have primaries, but the first round is effectively the primary. And of course, Paul Vallis is doing everything he can to appeal to the type of moderate to right-wing voters that are going to make up some of that 15, 20% of the, the vote that he's hoping to get. But when it comes time for runoff, he's going to moderate, you know, just like candidates do in general elections. I, I, I bet you that he's going to move away from some of the more outlandish rhetoric and he'll still be hitting law and order notes, but he'll probably try to um, appeal to much larger um, base and just go in full attack mode on whoever his opponent is. And certainly if it's Brandon Johnson, which, you know, polls seem to keep suggesting that Brandon Johnson is moving up and is capturing a lot of the, the energy in the city, uh, that would uh, be, you know, red meat for him to, you know, throw all of his attacks at. That's politics, though. I feel like people should embrace that, you know, be ready for a fight. That's kind of what, isn't that what we're in this for, is to, like, draw contrasts and make a stand and not to moderate or you know cower against the potential of being you know called a lefty it's the same way of all these democrats you know voting with republicans to like denounce socialism or something as if that's going to stop republicans from calling any democrat a socialist you know they're going to say and you know if it's lori lightfoot is or chewy garcia are in the runoff paul bass is going to call him a defunder the same way they will with brandon you might think oh it's not going to stick but at least you know somebody like brandon johnson has the courage of his convictions to talk about reinvesting you know funding into social programs and make an argument on that rather than um trying to like catch uh, up to where Val is at, is at on, on some of those things. The other thing I'll say is that anybody who's thinking that Paul Vallis is somehow going to be, oh, a better admi government administrator or, you know, he's got experience or what have you, this guy hasn't been elected, right? This He's only served as at the will and behest of these, you know, corporate friendly politicians that are looking to find a face that can ram through undemocratically unpopular policies, whether it's, you know, Daly's budget, which was, you know, handing out massive tax subsidies to corporations and taking money away from, uh, you know, working class communities or privatizing schools in Bridgeport, Connecticut or Philly or, you know, New Orleans or here in Chicago where he oversaw the massive, you know, move uh, to the Michelle Reese style, you know, Eli Broad kind of privatization um, effort that has been shown to be a complete failure in terms of providing better results for students and it's basically a de facto anti-union campaign and that's the same kind of policies that he would pursue as mayor if you like that you know if you want to see a kind of you know daily redux but without even you know daily at least was a you know wanted was a fan of like the neighborhoods in chicago and was you know going out and you know making connections with community organizations i think he was you know destructive as a mayor but he at least had some of that you know coming from the city this guy doesn't even he lives in what like glen ellen or you know <laughs> somewhere on the burbs <laughs> it's like I don't oh my god it. miles that's i just have to interrupt you but it's hilarious a lifelong Chicagoan trying to think of a suburb where Paul Vallis lives comes up with Glen Allen. 
He lives in either Palos Hills or Palos Heights. I don't know the difference between the two. I used to say that Palos Hills meant it was on on a hill, and Palos Heights means is on a heights. But then I'm like, what's the difference between a hill and a heights? So anyway, it's one of the that's why they call him Palos Paul. But go back to your uh, you're on a uh, roll there. I, well, I should also say the only area where we have real hills in the city of Chicago is down in my hometown of Beverly, where there were glacial ridges, and so you can see you know, the highest point. Uh, natural elevation in the city is down in the Dan Ryan woods at like 87th yes. and uh, Western. You can see the skyline from down there. Great sledding hill. Uh, and great running hill. You want to get in shape, folks, go down. I know what you're talking about. That, that hill's no joke uh, down there. I mean, anyway, I cut you off again. Continue, uh, Miles. Go ahead. Well, unfortunately, I, you know, I've been going down to uh, Beverly more frequently and I see the, the Vallis signs all over the place and that doesn't make me feel too proud of where uh, my uh from from my humble beginnings but uh and also we should say if you look at some of the early voting some of the strongest early voting is coming from the 19th ward down in beverly as well as um uh, i think the 41st some northwest side areas which is good news for um for 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 Vallis. so but i just want to say like that that's we shouldn't fall for that. You know, he's going to try to moderate if he does make it into the runoff and he's going to try to appeal and he's going to try to attack um, whoever is the candidate against him in the runoff. But if you think for a second that, you know, if you're going to be voting for a safer uh, challenger against Paul Vallis, if you're voting for some of the other, you know, top level candidates besides uh, Brandon Johnson, specifically because you think he'll be the most, uh, easy to attack on defund or on questions of public safety i would just say that's that's a fool's errand you're trying to fulfill because he's gonna go hard against anybody that's his whole approach you know and just the critics of lori lightfoot a lot of them are to the right you know of of her and think that she is too close to you know movements for against police violence and movements to kind of reform uh the police department in the city and the same is going to be said of uh of chewy garcia who you know has served alongside squad members in congress and i think served really um effectively i mean that's one issue that i think it's hard to really talk about in this race because we're talking you know all these candidates are running for mayor but when it comes to um Chuy Garcia, he's been a really effective voice, especially on the uh, immigration issue in in Washington, and the idea of like losing that to have this person come in uh, to uh, to serve as mayor. That I think should give some pause to people that are trying to you know be voting for the most progressive person. I just think that that's you know a calculation if we're talking about strategy and strategizing what's going to be you know fulfill progressive goals the most. I think that that's something to to keep in mind. But either one of those two. Uh, candidates are you can just look at the news reports from the past few weeks you can see there's a lot of you know errors being made and you know they're getting themselves into uh, trouble with all kinds of public statements being made that's the kind of uh things that a Vallis campaign is going to seize on so whoever it is he's going to go after them and he's going to try to moderate and impose himself as the unity candidate that can bring people together from across the political spectrum. And it's all going to be a guise for trying to ram through the same type of corporate friendly uh, policies that he's been supporting throughout his political career. It's, it's not just that he's, you know, bad, he's spoken out against 
abortion rights and said to be a Republican and is speaking at the like awake Illinois, you know, rallies and things like that. Yeah, he's definitely mingling with uh, with the far right. I don't think he would try to, you know, push those types of policies necessarily as mayor of Chicago. But what he would do is uh, use his position of being the lead administrator in City Hall to benefit the same type of corporate forces that have been pushing, you know, commu uh, uh, Black Chicagoans and other communities of color out of the city, uh, hyper-policing those areas and uh, just trying to build a city of the future. That's what he means when he says, you know, we're gonna take our city back. It's, it is like racially coded language, but it's basically, we gotta do what Daly envisioned, which was, you know, the same kind of plan for transformation, which is, and, you know, trying to get the Olympics. It's like, let's turn Chicago into a money hub that all these, you know, corporations can move into and feel comfortable in and attract that type of, uh, those types of communities and thereby completely change the nature um, and, and demographic makeup of, of the city. And I don't think that's what the majority of residents want, you know? So I think it's gonna be important to, uh, to keep the focus on not just some of the most extreme like MAGA right wing uh, points that Ballas makes, but what kind of agenda underlies the reasons that he's, he's actually running for mayor. All right. Uh, I'm going to push back a little bit on what you had to say. And uh, when it comes to uh, his appearance before uh, Awoke Illinois, I always love it. They're a, a transphobic uh, far right group uh, that um, uh, wants to uh, censor what teachers say, what teachers uh, are allowed to teach in the classroom. And they're using like the parents' rights movement as their cover. Paul Vallis went and spoke at a fundraiser for them over the summer. Uh, and uh, the rhetoric that they espouse uh, and that Paul Vallis joined in with them uh, to espouse reminds me a lot of the rhetoric he used when he was uh, the head of the CPS, Daly's uh, hand-picked guy to run the Chicago Public Schools. Uh, and so the interview uh, yesterday, which um, I'm, I'm going to get to, that was uh, cited by Shia Kapos uh, in um, – Politico, where he talked about his attitude about uh, critical race theory. Uh, he also got into his uh, philosophy, if you will, about how to run a public schools. Uh, heavy, 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 heavy emphasis on testing, uh, which uh, it, not testing used to figure out where the child's strengths and weaknesses are, what is a good approach uh, to, to helping that kid uh, learn to read or get overcome his fears of reading or fears of math, et cetera, and so forth. Now, as a punitive measure uh, to make sure you, if you don't pass this test, even though it's not really supposed to be a pass-fail test, you don't get to the next grade. And that's how he ran the show when he was uh, in charge uh, with uh, under Daily. And we're going to end social promotion, Harumph. And he's still talking that game. Uh, and so part of his criticism of critical race theory is that it takes away time. I'm not making this stuff up. You go listen to the interview. It takes away time from learning your multiplication tables. <laughs> God damn, Valis. I guess Valis is good at multiplying, but he's really bad at English and history. So he doesn't want anybody else to take English and history. That's kind of my take on it. You know what I'm saying, Miles? So I, I, I think there's a danger if he gets in control of the city with the public schools I mean, voucherizing the hell out of our public school system uh, in an attempt to destroy the Chicago Teachers Union and uh, 
And then the curriculum, oh my God, heavy hands down curriculum guide. You won't be able to teach this. You won't be able to teach that. Uh, so I take very seriously his appearances from an ideological standpoint uh, for Wake Illinois. And uh, so here we go. I'm going to give you the challenge that I gave our guests yesterday. Every guest in the Ben Jarofsky show uh, has to take an excursion into Paul Ballas's brain. Are you ready, Miles Conflassen? Uh, here you go. All right, put on your uh, your uh, scuba suit because you're going into his brain. Here's Paul Vallis on critical race theory. I'm going to read to you his quote, and then you're going to tell me what he means in this quote. Quote, when you introduce a curriculum that is not only divisive, but a curriculum that further undermines the relationship of children with their parents, with their families, that's a dangerous thing. And for white parents, I mean, how are you going to discipline your child when your child comes home and your child has basically been told that their generation, their race, their parents, their grandparents, they have discriminated against others and they have somehow victimized another person's race? End of quote. How are you going to discipline your child, white parents, when your child comes home and your child has basically been told that they have discriminated others. Miles, that was Paul Vallis's quote. Please explain to our listeners what he was saying in that quote. Go. Well, it comes down to three words. It's white grievance politics. And it's the same thing we've heard again and again from right-wing politicians that are trying to capitalize off of um, fears, you know, it's the uh, Yunkin playbook that uh, was used in Virginia. Um, it's certainly what people like Ron DeSantis and uh, Donald Trump are playing in. And it's just a way to appeal to that uh, voting base, right? I mean, he gave that uh, interview last year or a couple years ago, right? So, I mean, he might have, you know, been thinking towards this period of where he's going to be trying to run for mayor. And I don't think it's insincere. I think he probably believes it, but uh, it's saying it out loud like that is a way to gin up uh, a right-wing base that's understandably upset for all kinds of reasons for their, you know, maybe you know, whatever their economic situation is, whether they're feeling like they're, you know, losing some type of say, especially, um, you know, white parents that are having issues dealing with the um, changing ways in which our you know culture is putting forward you know especially in the wake of the uh, racial justice uh protests of uh, 2020 there is a lot of focus on uh, in the public uh, discourse on the institutional racism on the way that racism has plagued uh, systems and has benefited white americans historically not just uh in the 19th century or the 20th century but continuing into the 21st century and this is quotes like that are a way to say it's not your fault you know your kids brains are being poisoned by somebody that's trying to make them feel guilty um and actually you're you know completely in the clear and that's nonsense and yeah, focus on the multiplication tables or something, but that's not what education is about. Education is about giving people the tools they need to, you know, uh, traverse the landscape of life and be able to, you know, understand how, you know, social relations, just as much as it's about understanding concepts or theories or equations or what have you, 
Um, and you can't understand that properly unless you have a nuanced understanding of how we, you know, how our country has came to be and how certain people are, you know, in positions of power versus other people and the ways that that manifests even on smaller levels, you know, in different people's lives. It doesn't mean that, you know, all white people are to blame at every second, but that, it does mean that white people have to play a role in reconciliation, you know, and coming to terms with that um, long history of abuse and exploitation. And that this story continues to this day, you know, that this isn't, uh, that this isn't history. And I agree with you, uh, Ben, I think that the, on the question of like, what Vallis's role will be in terms of the, the, the school system, and that it's an incredibly destructive um agenda that he'll push through and that, that he's planning to he already did it you know he was head of cps that oversaw um you know school closings and privatization um and the in, incredible focus on testing as the one marker of you know achievement or success or whatever they like to call it excellence in, in, in schools that's what i always heard um in the public schools um when, here when i was going was oh we need more excellence in our students and the, the way you determine excellence is just by tests versus by you know judging students on the way that they you know approach subjects or the mindfulness that they show what have you yeah he and he'll probably will uh line up with some of the more radical um right-wing uh, views that that come out as it, as it relates to education i think he i think he will stay away from things like abortion for example but you know i don't think he's going to try to restrict abortion in the city if he becomes mayor i think he would or at least you don't think he would you know make efforts to d have that uh, lodged into policy just because it would be so incredibly unpopular um but when it comes to some of these other things like uh you know attacking critical race theory but critical race theory you know that's a boogeyman that doesn't mean anything that's does that's just a concept that uh, is a stand-in that was created by christopher rufo and these you know uh wasn't created by him but you know the, the use of it as a political cudgel was you was created by him and his you know uh right-wing communication squad to basically come up with a way to scare white people and turn the under the the tensions that came out of, you know, the racial justice uprisings of uh, following George Floyd and Breonna Taylor's uh, killings by police into uh, fuel to get more right-wing reactionary candidates elected so that they could put forward uh, platforms that would do the same, serve the same uh, interests of power that, uh, that the right-wing has always sought to benefit. And so, you know, no student in Chicago public schools is learning a chapter on critical race theory. That's completely <laughs> absurd. They're learning maybe about black history and American history and how race relations plays into that. Um, but that's an important part of what people should be learning. That's history. That's not a, you know, left-wing ideology. That's just an understanding of how, you know, the, we we we've come to be at this point this uh point in our uh political lives and if we remove that we're we're, we're doing a disservice to uh the students of chicago yeah i uh well let's talk a little bit about that uh by the way just one little thing i just popped in my head uh when you're going on that riff uh paul vallis when he ran the chicago public schools and apparently still has this has an obsession with test scores which i always found very interesting and i say this as a guy who did terrible with tests okay i must confess that's where i'm coming from 
Uh, and, and look at the success I've made in my life, Miles. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. This is your an example. <laughs> what are we doing here? Oh, my God. It was the we worst. Would be, we'd be throwing the Ben Jarofskis under the bus. What are we doing? Oh, Lord. It was the worst. Yeah, I'm throwing the Ben. But the funny thing is. So Paul Valley, every test score counts. We'll flunk you, make you go to summer school. They put these kids in these schools where there's no air conditioning. <laughs> That'll teach you. Flunk a test. That's not really a pass-fail test. Shut up and take the testing. Anyway, uh, he was doing this. He was the appointee, follow me on this, Miles, of Mayor Richard M. Daly, who was known for being a terrible test taker. I don't, this is before your time. But there's a law, I think Daly took, it took three times to pass the bar. I think it was three times. I was just talking about with Delmarie Cobb. Uh, you know, we're the only two people old enough to remember this stuff. It took him, I think, three times. And the rumor that floated around, which I'm sure was not true, was that Cecil Partee, uh, a uh, Chicago politician that uh, only Delmarie and I remember, uh, took the test for him. That was a rumor that, like, Daly's enemies, Pat, well, you know, Cecil took the test for him, Ben. You know, people. <laughs> but the point is, it's so ironic. Your boss, Paul Vallis, was a lousy test taker. He rose to be the mayor of the city of Chicago. So how important can tests be? You're so obsessed with tests. I'd like to see Paul Vallis's test, by the way. All right. Anyway, uh, just curious what his tests were. How do you do in English? I feel he didn't do well in English. Um, Miles, you were a kid during the Vallis days in the public schools of Chicago. Your brother was a troublemaker. Uh, but <laughs> At Whitney Young uh, during the Vallis days, I remember he was part of that mini insurrection at Whitney Young, God bless him, of students I wrote about him at the time who rebelled against that idiotic test that Vallis and Gary Chico came up with to force every high school kid to take. Like they weren't taking enough tests. I think it was called the case test. It's one of the dumbest things the city has ever done. Uh that's just a, that's a long list, but I think it would be in the top 10. Uh, so you just general thoughts and memories you know, of what life was like as a young scholar uh, in the public schools of Chicago during the days of Vallis. Well, I was really blessed to go to uh, Chicago public schools and I went to a number of, uh, you know, elementary and then uh, I went to the academic center at Whitney Young um, and uh, and then to, to high school. And in the scheme of things, obviously, uh, Whitney Young was uh, pretty well resourced and funded. I mean, it wasn't that if anybody's seen, there's a movie called Cheaters that uh, stars uh, Jeff Daniels. That's about the this cheating scandal with, between Steinmetz and Whitney Young. And I remember they posed Whitney Young as this like glitzy, glamorous uh over resource school with giant computer labs and stuff that's not true that's complete you know exaggeration and you know and, and falsehood but it's kind of an interesting movie anyway about you know it's a school but it's but it's uh, but it's about steinmetz cheating on a test in order to compete with whitney young which was over resourced which uh you know compared to plenty of other schools in the city i think it speaks to the the lack of equity in investment in public schools, which is a hallmark of Paul Vallis's tenure as the CEO of the schools, because his, not only was he about uh, charters and bringing in, you know, private options to schools and, you know, he's been a promoter of vouchers and other things like that. He was also all about turnarounds, right? Where we would try to turn around a school 
um, and that often um, resulted in you know firing of, uh, of of students and consolidating schools and putting you know kids into um, worst resources uh resourced ones but from my experience you know i uh i kind of hated ballast in the early days because he wouldn't call enough snow days i always hated that <laughs> we would you know the snow would oh, fall and i'd be waiting to get the day off of school and paul would be you know the, the night before saying nope they're going into class tomorrow uh, so <laughs> that formed my initial that might you know animate some of my uh, current animosity towards the uh, towards the guy but uh yeah but but of course it was testing that's all we did was just like being taught to the test there was the, the iowa test i remember there was another one that was there was just it was like that's all we did i just remember sitting in libraries and filling out scantrons or if not doing that at least you know learning books that were just you know curriculums that were set up to the test um and so that's what that's how you would organize the um uh, everything that the students would be learning throughout the year was we got we're going to have this test on this month we're going to have this test this, this month and that would just determine the things you were able to teach as a as a teacher and my teachers didn't like it either you know i would talk i would have relationships with some of them especially at whitney young where they would uh you know confide that they didn't want to be doing that either you know but it's just the result of the orders from on high and so that um that really spoke to my experience. I was very lucky, though, because I did have some great uh, teachers and some of the uh, classes that were offered, especially at Winnie Young, were a lot more. I was able to, you know, be in the orchestra and do, you know, visual art classes and things that were a little bit more outside of traditional testing regime. Um, but again, that speaks to the fact that, you know, Whitney Young had an orchestra. So many public schools, across, including high schools across the city, don't. Or, and so parents have to you know, send their kids to schools across the city. I was coming from Beverly to go to Whitney Young every day. You know, I was traveling you know, from 103rd Street to, down to the West Loop every day just to get that kind of an education. And so, um, yeah, I think that, that a lot of the problems that existed under Vallis continue to exist today. Um, the difference is that there's like a real uh, energized movement for educational justice in the city now that has been uh, awoken, I think, by the by Karen Lewis largely and and core and the Chicago Teachers Union in the 2010s that you know is still alive today that is fighting for a different way to look at. Uh, what public education could be uh, in the city. And that just didn't exist, you know, when I was a student, at least not to any um, degree that was making changes and fighting for political power uh, to, to implement those changes. So, yeah, I think that a lot is uh, sadly still the same and uh, Vallis mayorship would probably be a return to a lot of that old school style of, you know, pro-privatization politics we've um we've seen in the past and that we've seen the uh failure as well yeah i uh i i ab absolutely believe he has an ideology when it comes uh to uh, schools uh and i'm sure we'll have a lot of time to talk about this in the coming uh weeks as we lead up to the election all right let's uh you mentioned ctu let's close a little ctu talk Chicago Teachers Union, my beloved Chicago Teachers Union, as I always say. And here, uh, I am also going to go back to what I was talking earlier about baby boomers. Uh, and so I will begin my remarks with this preface. I am a baby boomer. And as such, I disparage baby boomers, but I realize I share 
some of the same traits. Uh, fear, cautiousness, concern. <laughs> you, the, like the, the things that shaped our lives, like they stick with us for years. And so the 1972 presidential election where George Montgomery got clobbered by uh, Richard Nixon, that has shaped the view of so many baby boomers when it came to 2016 miles. And that's why they didn't vote for Bernie. Uh, because they, well, can't live, a lefty can't win those pictures with the bare chest, Ben. Uh, so I had this concern about the Chicago Teachers Union getting a hundred percent behind a candidate, Brandon Johnson. And this was my concern, and I, uh, I raised this at the outset. It's been kind of lost. It is this the Chicago Teachers Union, the faction that runs it right now, my beloved Stacey Davis Gates, uh, won with 57 percent of the vote. In their last election, which I think was a year ago, Brandon, uh, Brandon Johnson ran. I can't remember, Miles, when it was, but I think it was within a year. Uh, that is not a huge margin. To, to throw all in in a mayoral campaign means there's a chance that you'll get restlessness in the ranks of the Chicago Teachers Union. Teachers who look are members of dues paying members of the Chicago Teachers Union will get upset that the union is throwing in so strong behind Brandon Johnson. Uh, and it will exacerbate tensions that already exist in the union as to what the role and function of a teacher's union is. Is it to look out for the best interests of its members, or is it to be a force for progressivity and social justice in the city of Chicago, even if it means spending union dues to run uh, a mayoral candidate, and even if it means that some of the members themselves are a little more conservative than where the union's at. So that, to me, was a very real uh, threat that the union faced when it threw all in behind Brandon Johnson, and we're seeing uh, some um, we're seeing it come to life a little bit. Yesterday, uh, WTTW Parachutes brought on uh, some uh, members of the Chicago Teachers Union who are against uh, Brandon Johnson, ran against Stacey Davis Gates, uh, accusing the union of uh, spending their dues behind uh, Brandon Johnson's campaign wasting their dues, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, your general thoughts uh, as to whether that was too risky for Chicago Teachers Union to get behind Brandon Johnson, knowing that 43% of its members voted against them in the last election. Take it away. I think the riskiness of it remains to be seen because we don't know if Brandon Johnson is going to be the next mayor. And if he is, uh, I think I think that what a lot of, uh, you know, people defending the union's actions would say is that uh, it's not just about relative progressivity of a candidate in office. It's that we're electing the, the administrator of the school system you know we passed this elected school board but it's not going to be fully implemented for years um the mayor is still going to appoint the president of the board as well as half the members um and they're going to be the continue to be the ultimate decider when it comes to uh negotiations and there's going to be a new contract up right and so you want to have a more um sympathetic uh, person in the mayor's office when you have to come to those negotiations. Um, and we can see what it looks like to not have that by the past four years under the current mayor, where it was a constant battle over basic things like teacher and student health and the classroom. I mean, the COVID uh, situation was a disaster. 
in a lot of ways and like reopening the schools and not having the type of resources needed to keep students and teachers safe um and then just petty fighting too right i mean that's the, what a lot of the um past four years have been marked by is just this butting heads between Lori Lightfoot and Stacey Davis Gates and it coming down to a lot of really personal stuff, not giving, um, not paying, you know, teachers for days when they were effectively locked out, you know, for, you know, on, on, or when they were on strike. I mean, this is the type of uh, behavior you get when you have a mayor who is, um, butting heads with the teacher union and if you want to have a better relationship it would be a much better investment to put your money towards you know getting a friendlier uh, person to get a better outcome for both teachers and students so i think that that's you know one just brass tax argument of why this type of funding for a political campaign makes sense the reality is too that we gotta have a force in chicago politics that can compete with the amount of corporate PAC money that is flowing into this race um, and that's going to continue to flow into this race. And we don't have a progressive left infrastructure in the city. Most teachers, I think, you know, and members of the CTU want there to be, you know, some type of progressive alternative to whatever type of candidates the city's corporate class decides to put forward. And while we don't have a any type of competing, uh, you know, organizations that can fund those types of campaigns. And as long as we have a broken uh, political system when it comes to the role of outsized money, the outsized role of money in politics and campaign finance, then there needs to be a role that, uh, you know, strong working class forward unions like the CTU can play in the political process. And that this is an example of that. And then I just say, of course, there's gonna be like members first you know, teachers that are mad about this, like that's no shock. And so having a news report about it makes sense because it's an actual thing happening. But I don't know if that's necessarily representative of, you know, mass uh, disaffection within the, the, the rank and file over the, um, the spending. And I'll just say that, you know, yes, the, there was a lot of money put into Tony Prackwinkle's campaign in 2019. And that does not seem like a, a good investment at this point, yeah. but we're in a different world than we were in 2019 right now. I think, you know, judging by, you know, where the kind of chess pieces are on the board right now in politics. So I would just wait to judge the wisdom of some of these investments and just, you know, having somebody who's, who is actually a forceful advocate for teacher and student rights, like Brandon Johnson is in the race, I think is an important, you know, uh, effect to have on the political discourse in this city. And if you didn't have somebody like him in the race, and if he wasn't, or if he wasn't a viable candidate, you know, if he didn't have any money in his, um, in his bank account, you wouldn't, we wouldn't be having the kind of conversations about, uh, you know, changes to public education in the city um, that we're having right now on a on a citywide stage and even on a national stage to some extent. And so there's a lot of benefits, I think, to having union and unions historically have played this role politically. And we can have a larger debate about whether that is a good way for, you know, members dues to be 
um, used in, in the political arena, but it's not just the CTU. Look at all, all these candidates are getting money from unions, or, you know, from from members. Um, I think it speaks to the fact that we have decimated organized labor in this country, which is a larger issue, and that there should be more unions involved that are investing their money. It shouldn't just be the CTU that has to bankroll a lot of uh alternative independent candidates in the in these races we should have more unions that have you know more member dues that are able to have more of a voice and we should have a broader left electoral infrastructure that can fund these kinds of things now that's being built you know you look at groups like united working families that are building coalitions that are getting PACs. even chicago democratic socialists of america has a pack now where they're you know uh, bringing in money that's then going to seed uh, campaigns of aldermanic uh, candidates across the city. That's, but that's just starting to be built, and that can't compete with, um, you know, the uh, board of trade or you know some of these other uh, tools of the you know super rich elite class in the Chicago that's going to try to direct politics to benefit them. It's an uneven playing field, and there's uh, an important role, I think, for unions like CTU to play, and I think that this is how they're playing it right now. Yeah, no, that's a valid point, and uh, it's I, the same thing can be said. The operating engineers kicked a million dollars into uh, Jesus Garcia, and that, and that has made him competitive. He's really struggled to make uh, raise money. Uh, let's face it, folks. The reality of uh, politics in the city of Chicago to uh, four to five miles point. Uh, is that the closer you are to the downtown business community, the more money you're going to get for your campaigns. Uh, and then the more likely you will rule in such a way as to spend public dollars uh, on downtown development deals at the expense of schools and neighborhoods, et cetera, and so forth. That is a reality. That's called Chicago politics. It's 1989 when Richard M. Daley uh, was victorious. That's the model that Rom followed. And it's kind of the model that Lori Lightfoot tried to to follow, except she stumbled over her own feet every every day, it seemed like. So your point is very well taken. If there's gonna ever going to be a lefty elected mayor or a progressive elected mayor, it's going to have to be with union support. Uh, and um, so it's kind of a shame that the unions in Chicago are divided in terms of like one kicked in a million bucks to uh, Jesus Garcia and the other kicked in about a million dollars to Brandon Johnson. But that is Chicago. Uh, the left seems to always have some issues if divisions. Uh, put on your, uh, take out your crystal ball and make a prediction, Miles. Uh, who will be uh, emerge from Tuesday's election to, to face off in the runoff? Go. It seems pretty clear at this point it's going to be Dallas versus somebody. And uh, so I guess we'll we'll have to see. If I had to... Um, put money on it i i i don't know i mean i think that the, the movement we've seen over the past few weeks um and certainly from conversations i've had from looking at the way that certain uh influential people in chicago politics and in certain spheres of it are moving there's no doubt that brandon johnson's campaign is gaining the most momentum is becoming the clear you know, lane for left-wing uh, voters, for progressive voters, for voters who actually want to see some type of uh, broader change rather than just, you know, continued management of City Hall and want to see things um, move in a different direction. And I think that the way we've seen, you know, actions like, you know, Chuy Garcia endorsing Sammy Martinez, the, you know, Dick Mel back candidate in the 33rd Ward, 
um, and even Ada Flores in the 25th Ward is running against progressive champion Byron Sigcha Lopez. I think people are understandably having questions about uh, the progressive credentials of Chewy Garcia, at least where he currently stands. And Lori Lightfoot, meanwhile, is, you know, telling people not to vote if they don't vote for her, basically engaging <laughs> yeah. in, you know, uh, yeah. voter uh, disenfranchisement, essentially, and and has reneged on pretty much every one of her uh, campaign pledges from 2019. So it's very difficult, I think, for people who consider themselves at all progressive or even liberal to, to conceive of, like, voting for her again if they you know are thinking with their heads and they actually want to see any of those goals accomplished um and as a result of that if we look at the polling we look where things are you know obviously there's different polls all, all over the place but one just came out yesterday that showed brandon johnson in second place to paul ballas that i think is representative of a broader movement and trend we're seeing and that's often how these things go you know Lori lightfoot was probably not going to be um in the runoff a few weeks before the um the, the the first round back in 2019 but the you know election turned into kind of a referendum on corruption and ed burke and suddenly um you, you know lori lightfoot's uh, bring the light in message was was resonating and uh and it thrust her into that uh position and so and i think that happened in kind of the latter days of the race i think we're seeing somewhat of a similar uh, movement among uh, the, the the campaign for for Brandon Johnson, a lot of coalesc coalescing of different organizations and progressive groups are getting behind him, and a lot of the coalition. So, if I had to put money on it, I would um, agree with uh, guests in front of the show, Gregory Pratt, and say I think it's probably going to be a Vallis versus Brandon Johnson runoff if the people that you know believe in progressive politics and, and and support them do actually come out and vote because i think that's going to be the big question i think we've seen some indications i think i saw somewhere that it might turn out to be because of mail-in voting we might even get to 40 percent of the city voting in this election that's what <laughs> i read i think in the sun times oh my so God, um <laughs> that would be you know a big change from 35 percent for the oh city but that's yeah good. if we see um if we see the you know the, the the you know leftier side of the city and the progressives come together and support Brandon like it seems they're doing then I do think it's going to be a Brandon versus uh, Ballas runoff. Uh, I I uh, I'm going to Vegas right now to put the money down. Uh, if you and Greg Pratt say it's going to happen, I just got to say forty. What a pathetic thing! It's me talking. Chicago, you are pathetic. You are absolutely pathetic. Forty percent. You're right. If it is forty percent, people are like, oh my god, it's the highest turnout in years. Whoa. <laughs> 40%. You are pathetic, Chicago. And you know what, Miles? I'm telling you right now, there's so many people I know in the city of Chicago who are really smart people, way smarter than me in a lot of things. Probably did a lot better than I did on all those uh, Paul Vallis tests that he loves to give. They don't know anything. They're like, who's this guy? Um, I heard the name. And I think part of the issue, uh, Miles, is that national politics took up so much of people's brains. There's only so much of a person's brain that we're going to dedicate to politics anyway. Uh, and in the post-Trump 2016 years, I think national politics really took over uh, people's brains. And so they not really paid attention to uh, local politics. Uh, and so that may explain why turnout is, <laughs> if you talk about a 40% turnout, but you're right. You're absolutely right. People talk about a 40% turnout. Like, well, that's impressive. Yeah, it's impressive. 
if if you compare it to like 20%. All right, before we go, are you as excited as I am about Patrick Beverly, the 2006 graduate of Marshall High School, Chicago's own Patrick Beverly, coming to my Chicago beloved, my beloved Chicago Bulls, who are looking terrible coming to the All-Star break. We're going to do a whole show on this in a little bit, uh, folks. We uh, do a bonus drop it on Monday talking about beloved Bulls. Uh, they were Miles had some of the worst basketball, most depressing basketball uh, of the last two weeks where the Bulls, like you could just see it. They were playing Indiana. You could just see, oh, God, we have the lead, but Indiana's making a run. Oh, no. And they get so scared. You know what I mean? They're like baby boomers confronting Bernie Sanders as their uh, nominee. They get scared. Uh, and uh, Indiana beats them. Do you think Patrick Beverly, who's not a – great scorer but just a fiery leader do you think he can put some passion uh into the chicago bulls and so it's just some like grit and toughness that has been lacking what do you think i'm hopeful for the passion and the grit and the toughness what i do think he will most likely bring is some chaos and that is what i am most excited for because while we're on this crazy ride that is the 2022 23 chicago bulls season you know, Stacey King calls them the cardiac bulls because they, you know, give you a heart attack either way. They're, they gotta be, I don't know where they are. They must be on some historical list of the teams that have given up the most 20 point leads uh, in one season, because that's just what you get with this. It'd be one thing if they were just rolling over from the first quarter, but instead they get you high on, you know, oh, we got this team, you know, we got our foot on their throat. This is, uh, you know, gonna be a blowout and then somehow let them back in and, and lose. I'm hopeful that uh, PBF can do something to, you know, strengthen the spine of uh, of some of the players and hopefully just keep them engaged because that's the biggest thing. And you've probably seen this too. You just see them start, especially when DeRozan's not on the floor, you just see them kind of check out by the fourth quarter, especially Zach Levine. And, you know, and what's the first thing Patrick Beverly said? He said, I'm going to be on Zach Levine's ass, right? Like, and... Well, I, that to me sounds like chaos because, you know, you see already apparently there's disgruntlement in the locker room. There's disagreement between Levine and Billy Donovan is what they say and that the other players are on Donovan's side. Clearly something's wrong with the culture uh, in the locker room with the Chicago Bulls right now. I mean, uh, albeit we, we do have Dale and Terry still uh, keeping the good vibes alive, which makes me very happy. And I really hope we see more Dale and Terry playing time in the second half of the season but if nothing else I hope we get a little bit more uh more chaos in the uh, in the team with with Patrick Beverly on board and you know what like it's we're, we're not getting Lonzo Ball back this season that's obvious it's not we're not gonna be you know a championship contending team we might not even be in the play-in um I don't think it makes sense to tank because there's no chance. I don't think the Bulls are going to, you know, get a first round pick anyway. Um, but just have some fun out there, you know, make it make it a little bit chaotic. And it's good to have a hometown hero on the court. I mean, that's what Patrick Beverly brings. And I think he's going to try to put on a show. We saw what happened in that Minnesota, you know, playoff game where he just like ripped his jersey off. He yeah. was crying, running around the court. And hey, he played like hell that game or, you know, they played the hell out of the game. So I hope we see a little bit more of that energy and I hope him and Dale and Terry can get some kind of a, uh, a chemistry go. And that's my one hope for the second half of the season. Yeah. And if any uh, revives IO, 
uh, who yeah. uh, I feel has been kind of lost this season uh, because of the, like you said, the team is just so down. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm I'm feeling it, and I'm with you about the rookie Terry. I want him to get more playing time, uh, and uh, and then they, they picked up this other guy, Terry Taylor. We don't have time to go into him, but he killed the Bulls about a year ago. I remember him. He killed the Bulls. I'm like, who is this guy? And now the Bulls got him as well. So I listen. You know what? I get all. I'm like I would go back to the baby boomer theme. I get cautious and nervous and afraid uh, when it comes to politics. I'm throwing it out the window when it comes to basketball. I'm gonna just assume the greatest things are gonna happen, and that my beloved Chicago Bulls will go uh, on a great winning streak in the second half of the season, uh, Miles, and roar into the playoffs as uh, like it was 1996. How about that? <laughs> and then we'll we'll then I'll meet you in Grant Park. Yeah. The, uh... Trophy I'll, parade. I'll save that spot for you, me, and Stacy Davis Gates in Grant Park. Uh, <laughs> another Bulls fan. Uh, Miles, before you go, give shout out uh, any in these times articles you want people to know about. Uh, always good lefty material in, in these times. So give a shout out what you got going there. Yeah, definitely check out in these times.com. We've got a lot of great um, stories up right now. I worked on a uh, cover story from the most recent print issue, which is by Carrie Leiterson, great uh, Chicago journalist, um, who actually uh, did a real incredible deep dive on the push to nationalize the rail system in, in the U.S. that a number of unions, uh, including the United, United Electrical Workers and the Rail uh, Workers United, have gotten behind basically a plan for public ownership. They, you know, you looked at uh, East Palestine and uh, the horrible situation there with the train derailment. You even look at the you know union fight at the end of last year. We almost had a national strike until Biden effectively forced a contract on on workers. Um, she, Carrie lays out what rail nationalization could look like. Um, how it has historical antecedents. It's not some wild-eyed idea, um, and people have really thought through what uh, such a proposal could look like and compares it to other countries. And so really great read. We've been doing a lot of great rail coverage. Jeff Shirky has also uh, written quite a bit on it for us. Um, we also have a piece uh, that uh, Hamilton Nolan, his great labor reporter, wrote on the end of the warrior Met strike. Uh, which was, you know, the longest strike in modern U.S. Uh, history. It went on for about two years down in Alabama, these coal workers, and really um, unfortunate ending to the strike. And he really cast a lot of the blame at the National Democratic Party for not fully getting behind these red state coal miners in their, in their labor fight um, to lift up, you know, the cause of working people. And then finally, I would say that people should check out a article we just put up this week i added by benji hart who is a, a local chicago organizer and activist and writer um, and they wrote a great piece on um, tying the no cop academy movement in chicago folks probably remember especially because they just broke ground on this giant police training facility i think this week um in humble park or garfield park uh, uh and you know we're celebrating it well benji was a organizer on the No Cop Academy campaign, which had a lot of, I know you've talked about the role of Chance the Rapper in that uh, in, in, in that effort. A lot of, you know, uh, racial justice advocates got behind this effort to stop the police academy from being built. They weren't successful, but they did raise a lot of uh, issues about how that money could be better spent. 
uh, they Benji ties it to uh, what's happening in Atlanta, uh, where they're building this uh, what's been deemed Cop City, this giant police complex in a forest right outside of Atlanta. And um, organizers have been working there to stop that development from going. And unfortunately, somebody you know was killed by police as part of that. And so they do a great job of tying together a lot of the parallels between those two um, campaigns and how uh, organizers and those seeking to reduce the role of violent policing in our society have uh, been working to combat both um, efforts in Chicago and in Atlanta. So I definitely encourage people to check that out. The title of the article is No Cop City Anywhere. All right. Excellent stuff from In These Times. Uh, I, my Saturday is my day for reading In These Times. My, I don't know if I ever shared this with you. I think I did. Uh, I just uh, I spent a good chunk of every Saturday morning reading articles. Uh, I get that weekly digest right to my phone and so really well, good folks should, yeah sign up yeah. on the sign up and you uh for the weekly newsletter and yeah every saturday get all this great stuff delivered uh to your inbox and it's always free online we make sure we keep it all um free so everybody can uh, read it definitely going to reach out to carly ladders and that sounds like a fascinating story about the rail uh nationalizing the rail yards all right very good uh thank you very much uh, miles complasson uh editor of in writer of in these times and uh loyal Chicago Bulls fan. Let's hope he's accurate uh, in his, well, actually his prediction was more about the mayor's race. My prediction was about the Bulls. Uh, and uh, good to talk to you, Miles. Always fun talking to you. Uh, and also want to thank uh, producer Chris for doing an outstanding job as he always does. Give yourself a raise, take it out of petty cash. Peace and love, everybody. And remember, you can catch previous Ben Jarofsky shows, Benny J bonus interviews, and so much more at chicagoreader.com. And find Ben Jarofsky all over the internet on your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms.